Welcome to another inspiring message recorded at Rivers Church. Well, let's get to managing our money. Managing our money this morning. And I want to start, before I give you the title this morning, I want to start by mentioning an interesting book by Philip Coggan called Paper Promises, Money, Debt, and a New World Order. He talks about the future of money, and I'll refer to it later in its actual context. But what I want to mention is a story he tells in the book. He mentions the nation of Fiji, and he says way back in time, the Fijians were at war with different pirates and so on off their coast, and they captured a chest of gold coins. They brought the possessions off the ship, and they brought the gold coins off the ship, and they put them on the beach. But when they opened the chest and found the gold coins, they found no value in them. They wondered what these strange glimmering things were. So they began to play skimming stones with them across the ocean. You know what we used to do as kids? You bounce stones across the water. Well, they deposited a small fortune in the depths of the sea. And the reason they did this is because the Fijians did not value gold coins. They valued whale bones. You wore them around your neck and it was a sign of wealth. They also valued cowrie shells and they used them to trade. And wampum beads, which the North American Indians also used to trade. The decorative things they put value on, but real gold they didn't value, so they ended up throwing it into the sea. Pretty amazing thing. And uh, they so valued these decorative things, two cowrie shells could actually buy a slave woman. That's how much value they put on decorative items. And I realized when I read this that it's exactly what we're doing today. We no longer value real wealth and real value. We put it into ornamental things, things we can wear and show off. Instead of building true wealth, true substance. And what Philip Coggan says is in the world today, we have paper money, but we have very little substance. We've exchanged paper for things that aren't substantial anymore. And I believe money is becoming a real challenge. We lack wisdom with money. And we convert money into worthless things into, instead of building true wealth that will prepare for our future and the future of our children. They placed intrinsic value on something that had no intrinsic value. They placed it on beads and ornaments. And we need to learn to put value on real things, on the kingdom and on true wealth, things that last. Are you with me this morning? Do you know you can tell the health and the advancement of a society by the way they treat money. Obviously, in the case of the Fijians, you can see they had a completely different value system. And today, I believe people have got a bad value system, a wrong value system. We treat money incorrectly, and it shows you where we are. I believe we're in a time at the moment that corresponds with the time of the judges. You read the book of Judges, and four times you read this phrase in the scripture, Judges 17, 18, 19, and 21, it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. We don't longer have authority, a God authority. And as a result, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Do you know what? Misuse of money marks our culture. Misuse of money marked their culture. Why? Because they didn't look to the ultimate authority, who is God, to teach us how to manage money. 
I want to cite a few examples before we get into today's message, which is uh, uh, give, the title I give you in a moment. But in the book of Judges, we read in Judges 9 that a man called Abimelech, he uh, was, was uh, put in charge, and he wasn't a godly man. It's much like today. In Judges 9, it says they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Berith, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. I want to mention names today, but politics is often filled with reckless scoundrels who use money for evil purposes rather than to build the nation. And you can see where a culture is by the way they use money. If you look at the life of Samson, you'll see Samson was called by God to deliver the nation, but guess what happened? Delilah was persuaded by the five lords of the Philistines to, to uh, find out the secret of his strength, and they paid money. Notice here, in Judges 16, we'll just pick up a piece of it. Each one of us, they said, will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. I'm sure you all in the room know what a shekel is today. Haven't you got a couple in your pocket? You see, when you read this, it's just, but guess what? Here's a woman who loved a man, and he, the Bible says he was in love with her, but money broke up the family. Money breaks up homes, money breaks up nations. And when a nation doesn't know how to manage its money, all sorts of corruption comes in. Isn't that true? And 1,100 shekels here, by the way, is very interesting. It's 13 kilograms of gold. You multiply that by five, you get 60, uh, sorry, silver, you get 65 kilograms of silver, which was worth in today's money 600,000 rand. I know people who would betray their family for 60,000 rand. And some of you say, amen, not too readily. Just keep looking straight ahead. How many of you know money is a sign of where a culture is? We go on to read about Micah, and I want to read these verses here, because this is literally what we're doing today. Judges 17, uh, where there's no king, where there's no authority, where there's no God. Look what happens. It says, now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver, 13 kilograms, the same as with Delilah, that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. In other words, I've stolen from my own mother. Then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son, because you owned up. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver, notice, to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. He goes on to say, I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took the 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make an idol. And it was put in Micah's house. Now this man, Micah, had a shrine and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. And then it reminds us, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Do you know what people do with their money today? Not only are they stealing money, and by the way, when people steal, you know what they steal? They feel entitled. If you steal money from your company, you feel entitled to it because what most people say when they steal from companies is this, look what they pay me. Look how much money they make. You feel entitled, but you're wrong. People who break into houses and steal feel entitled because they're poor. But entitlement doesn't entitle you to steal. The Bible says, let him who steals, steal no longer, but work with his own hands that he might have something to give. You don't just work to pay for your own needs, you become a contributor, you create in society. 
which is the theme of rivers for this year. We're not meant to be people who consume. We're meant to be people who create and build our country. And here she takes the money. She, he steals the money. She takes the money. She creates a God that she then worships. And what people are doing with their money today is they're converting it into material things that they then worship and they set it up as an idol in their lives instead of keeping God as the king in the center. So having said that, I want to speak to you this morning on more wisdom with money. And I have six things which I hope we'll have the time to get through. Number one, the first important thing I want to spend a bit of time on is don't pretend to be rich. Build true wealth. Too many people want to act as though they're rich so they can impress people with the trappings and the image of wealth. But I want to remind you that no matter what you wear or what kind of home you have or what kind of car you drive, people have different tastes to you and they might even find your taste distasteful. So while you're trying to impress them, they might even secretly be mocking you. Isn't that the truth? I've opened the Homeowner magazine and the Habitat magazine, and I've seen some people's homes, and I'm thinking, what were you thinking? But they think it's you know, coming to my house. So let's not use foolish things that are fleeting. Let's build true wealth. Let's build true value, because true wealth has substance, but riches have an image. Are you with me? Now, Phil Coggan, in his book, Paper Promises, he talks about the new world that's coming, and he says we're in great danger because what the world is doing is it's printing money, but it doesn't have the gold or silver to back it up. The Chinese were the first to invent paper money because it was more convenient than actually carrying around bags or chests of gold. But money has to have worth. The paper's got to be backed by something. But they say in America, there's not enough gold reserves to back the $22 trillion that America alone owes. They'll never be able to pay it back. So they've stopped backing up money with gold. We don't understand that when we talk about money, we've, we've got to think in terms of substance. Think of the guinea. In the old days, a guinea. What was a guinea? So it was just the name of money. No, no. It, was, it came from the nation of Guinea where gold was found by the British, and so they backed up the guinea in your hand with a guinea of gold. The pound symbol, which is like an L, is the French word livre, which is a pound of silver. That's why we talk about pound sterling. It was backed up by something. It was just a piece of paper. Are you with me? Dollars. What's a dollar? Oh, it's an American name. No, it came from Dala, which came from Tala, a valley where they minted gold that had no nonsense in it. Today, the dollar is still the standard. And so when we spend money, we must exchange it for substance, not image. Are you with me? Even the Spanish word peso, piece of gold. Everything that we spend, we need to think of it at hand. Am I exchanging this for something frivolous or am I exchanging it for something of real value that people might not even see? Do you know when you pay your bond, no one sees it? But you're building equity as that balance goes down. And there's this, there's this, there's this value in your house now. But no one sees that. But when you rock up with the latest jacket or the, the, the jeans from Gucci, everyone. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Are, are, are those? And when you've got a watch that's one kilo on your hand, you can hardly raise your hand in worship. They notice that, but that's not true wealth. Are you with me? And often we exchange our money for image instead of building true wealth. 
And as Christians, you need to focus on building truth. Now, I'm not against nice things. And if you want to buy nice things, that's great. But use wisdom. Use wisdom and make sure what you're spending is, has, there's an equivalent. Are you with me? You see, in the Bible, during the time of Solomon, Solomon understood wealth. He understood how to use wealth. So the Bible says in, in 1 Kings that he converted the gold into shields. I want us to read it because Solomon wanted to ensure future generations had wealth. And it says in 1 Kings 10, read with me here, King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 small shields of hammered gold with three miners of gold in each shield. And the king put them in the palace of the forest of Lebanon. So he wanted to keep assets that would strengthen the kingdom. He didn't, like today, they just print paper. No, no, Solomon had assets. And if you calculate it all, it's 120,000 shekels from the big ones and uh, 900 miners from the smaller ones. And the combined value in today's money, 695 million rand was in those shields. So if anything happened, they could convert that into coinage and the kingdom would be strong. Are you with me? Now, I want to ask you, what are you spending your money on? And if they converted it, would you have value? Most people have got a car that's leased to the hilt. If the bank came to take it, you'd still owe money. People take out 100% bond. You've got nothing there. Then they still eat out and do all sorts of fancy things. But if your house were taken away, you'd still owe the bank money for charges. We need to be able to convert our wealth into something that if everything goes wrong, we've got something. But currently all we've got is paper. Are you with me? Now, I'm not against nice things, and I'm not against blessing, and the Bible speaks of prospering and enjoying things and enjoying blessing, but you've got to make sure that you spend your money, and you don't pretend to be rich, but you actually are building wealth. Are you with me? Now, notice what his son did. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, disobeyed the Lord. He, he moved away from God, and look what he did. 1 Kings 14, it says in the fifth year of King Rehoboam. Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Jerusalem. That's because they were disobedient. And he carried off the treasures of the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. We just read about that. He took everything, including all the gold shields Solomon had made. So what did Rehoboam do? Rehoboam made bronze shields to replace them. And he assigned to these commanders of the guard on duty at the entrance to the royal palace. Whenever the king went into the Lord's temple, the guards bore the shields. And afterwards they returned them to the guardroom. He pretended to be rich, but actually all he had was bronze. I wonder if we're pretending to be rich, but actually when you weigh it up, it's just bronze. The expensive cars we drive, are they paid off? Or are we trying to display bronze? But behind it, actually the bank owns that car. It's very quiet in this <laughs> Anglican church and Methodist church in Kailami. You see, we don't quickly say amen to wisdom. And we'll cheer and clap when we talk about prosperity. But we've got to understand how prosperity comes about. It doesn't fall out of heaven and it doesn't come from the lotto. It comes from managing money with God's wisdom. And we can't create the impression of wealth. We need real shields. We need to convert our money into real wealth, property, some gold, shares, things of value, even furniture. If you have antique furniture in your house, it serves just as much use. You can paint it up even. 
but if you've got furniture that's cheap, you spend a fortune on it, guess what? In two years' time, it's out of fashion, and it just falls apart. A little bit of moisture gets in it, poof, it's gone. You have to think about everything we do. Are you with me? And so we must understand how to build true wealth. Ecclesiastes 7 says this, for wisdom is protection. It's like a shield. Just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its possessions. So we mustn't be owned by the banks. We need to have some serious value in what we spend our money on. Euripides, the Greek playwright, said this. He said, know first who you are, then adorn yourself accordingly. Sometimes we use things to make an image, but we actually are wasting our time because truly rich people, you often don't know they're rich. A man called Thomas J. Stanley wrote a book called Stop Acting Rich. And he said, truly rich people don't waste money on the following, clothes, boats, cars, and watches. And he did a survey of millionaire women across America, and he found that the top brand of shoe that they wore was Nine West. Not Jimmy Choo. He then surveyed men and found out what shops they shopped at. True millionaires, not, not pretend millionaires, true millionaires. And he found this, that these are the five stores that millionaire men shop at, Nordstrom's. Now Nordstrom sells brands, but Nordstrom's is a quality shop. It's a quality shop. And uh, second was Macy's. Macy's is like a department store. Coles, department store. Target, that's like a pick and pay. And then Costco, which is like a macro. Those are the top five. But we like to go to Santon and walk into the flashy shop. How much are these shoes? 12,000, I'll have them. You're walking your wealth on dog poo. Rather put it into your house. Am I making sense today? The top five, thing, five clothing stores for millionaire women and all the men are bringing. Tell them, tell them. There's one called Ann Taylor. It isn't a top brand, but it, it's, it's like Nordstrom's. Second is Nordstrom's. Then again, Macy's, Target, and TJ Maxx. If you've ever traveled to America, they sell very, very good quality stuff, leftover runs of things, handbags, watches, all sorts of stuff. You get it for like 50% of the price. That's wisdom, buying quality at a low price. So your money's going further and you can put it into real things. Are you with me? And they say that, the, he says, this is what Thomas J. Stanley says. He says, we are driven by looking at sports people and celebrities and trying to imitate their lifestyle. But we don't realize that all these people eventually go broke. I love his quote here. He says this, out of many things he says, he says, we, have, we all have bought into the image over substance. Looking beautiful is more important than being beautiful. And let me remind you of some of the celebrities who people chase after, especially the ones who wear gold chains around their necks and have got bikini women in convertible cars. Johnny Depp, he was worth 400 million. He's currently bankrupt. 400 million dollars, a gazillion rand. 50 cent. One of the five wealthiest hip-hop artists in the world, worth 155 million dollars, bankrupt. Hmm? He's estimated to owe $50 million in debt. Tony Braxton, big hit in the 90s. But she kept on spending money, compulsive shopping. She ended up in debt to her record company. 
She had fancy home decor that she kept up dating to keep up with the other stars. She was declared bankrupt way back already in 1998. What about Michael Jackson, the king of pop? Well, it all went pop when he died because they were about to take over Neverland. It was about to be repossessed. He had run up debts through lawsuits, through extravagant living. They say he owed between 400 million to 500 million dollars at the time of his death. Shocking thing. Mike Tyson, he earned $400 million over his career, but he was knocked out and owes currently $32 million in debt. Can you see what happens? But wait, here's MC Hammer. Can't touch this. <laughs> do, 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 do. You remember that song? Changed the world. He was making $30 million a year. But guess what? He bought a million-dollar mansion, spent $30 million on renovating it, had 200 staff, 19 racehorses, and sadly they've touched him now because there's 13 million in debt. <laughs> These are people people admire. They want to emulate and walk around looking like them. Dennis Rodman, teammate of Michael Jordan. He became an eccentric celebrity. His face is known across the world, mixes with politicians all across the, the, the world, but he deeply in debt cannot even pay the maintenance payments on his two children. And then T-Pain, he is in pain. <laughs> At the height of his career, this rapper was earning $40 million, living in absolute luxury. Recently, it was reported he borrowed money from a friend to buy fast food from McDonald's for two of his children on an outing. Don't emulate those who pretend to be rich. Understand how to convert your money into real, real wealth. Now, I don't want to be insensitive at this point as I wrap up this point. Studies have shown that people who like to lavish themselves with very fancy stuff and really show how amazing they are, often were deprived in their childhood. They grew up poor, and also they say they grew up without love. I can relate to that. I understand. When I went into business, I began to spend money on cars. Every second year, because of the tax laws, I bought a brand new car, and I bought myself stuff to spoil myself. But you've got to grow up and learn. They say what we do is with money is we nurture ourselves to make up what's missing. True strength of character realizes that Christ nurtures us and we don't need those things to make us a person. So we need to break free and build true wealth and not pretend to be wealthy. We need substance over image. Are you being helped today? Number two, the second thing we need to do with wisdom with money is enjoy things without owning them. Now, I don't mean borrow from people and not give it back. Warren Buffett says this, and he certainly knows about money. He says, until you can manage your emotions, don't expect to be able to manage money. When you are emotional, you make unwise decisions rapidly. You see, we need to take control of our lives, and when we walk past that shop, and those things talk to us, because they have a voice. Come here, you're worth it. Imagine the looks you'll get. We need to get our emotions under control. Because he says you'll make wrong decisions and you'll make them rapidly. You see, you can enjoy things without owning them. You know how you do it. You celebrate what others have. As soon as you hear someone's got something new, you go over and you celebrate it. Can I come visit? 
Let me come to you. Oh, yeah, you got this amazing. Can I come? Oh, this is nice. Oh, this is nice. Oh, my word. Look at, where did you get? Oh, my, these floors. Oh, this couch. Ooh, yeah, my. And you say, you have a cup of coffee. Oh, one of those, you've got one of those smegs and you've also got this. Ooh, yeah. yeah. And then you go home. Someone gets a new car, the one you've wanted. I won't mention the Golf, but it's usually the M5, BMW, or it's the Mercedes, whatever it is. Sit in it, smell the leather, rub the stitching, play with the stalks, turn the wheel. Let them take you for a drive. If they let you drive, enjoy it, but then walk away and say, I don't have the payments. Come on now. You see, when you go window shopping and you see all the latest stuff in all these shops, tell yourself, you know what, in one year's time, this is going to be old. So you walk away rejoicing, thank God I didn't buy it because it would have been out. Why do you think our church foyers have got steampunk in? It's not just because we're weird and creative. It doesn't date. Foyers in the building still looks cool. If we'd done the latest state of the art, the trends, you know, we would look so old school, so yesterday. You've got to be wise, church. Look at those watches in Santon City when the shops are closed. Go stand there by that U-boat and look at it. It's 200,000. Piece of absolute art. My gosh, Lord, you have created man wonderfully, and he is amazing. Cheers. Unless you're going to buy it, and it's going to appreciate, and you're going to keep it in a safety deposit box, that's building wealth. But if it's all about bronze, and you're going to parade those shields. They've got no real substance. We can enjoy things without owning them. Joshua Beck wrote a book called The More of Less. Him and his wife got rid of a lot of their possessions. And I want to read you what he says, because this is the crux of it today. And I, and I really want to encourage you to get, get a grip on your emotions. And can, can I say this? One of the biggest issues, you'll notice in car magazines and, and, and in these flashy magazines, they'll never tell you the value of a car. Buy this car because its depreciation is lower. No, they show you an image. Feel the feeling. Uh, there's one, sheer driving pleasure. I beg to differ. I think most cars are driving pleasure today. We've all caught up. Be careful. And if you get drawn by a car, go hire it first. I've always wanted a convertible. Hire one in December for three days. Get it out your system. <laughs> now watch. Now watch. This is what he says. Joshua Becker, he says, our culture begs us to own more. Advertisements call us to purchase the latest and the greatest. Our natural tendencies cause us to compare our lives with those around us. And we seem to have a building desire to impress others by owning as much as possible. As a result, we spend precious energy wishing we had more. But this constant dreaming, hoping, and envying others' possessions is stealing us from our joy and contentment today. He says, it makes us feel like we're missing something, even though there's so much joy right in front of us. We made the decision years ago to live with fewer possessions. Sometimes I get asked, he says, do you think you'll always live with a minimal number of possessions? My response is always the same. Oh yes, I'm never going back. There's just too much joy and freedom on this side. Church, there's the illusion that you'll be happier with more. Happier with more is not true. The more you got, the more responsibility you got. 
And if you're big enough to handle it without it weighing you down, fine. And if you've got more and it's got true value and God's blessed you, but don't try and accumulate stuff that is bronze. And don't get caught up. Enjoy what other people have got and you'll be free in your life. Number three, live deciding versus constantly sliding. Success in life is not an accident. It doesn't come from a increase in salary. It comes from making the right decisions. John Maxwell said it's our decisions, not our conditions that determine our quality of life. See, the more you get, doesn't mean you're going to be happier. It's the decisions you make with what you've got that will determine. We've got to say no to lots of things and yes to the right things. Get it into your system where you get used to saying no to things. I can but I won't. I have to do that with lint chocolate. You can see I've said yes to it for a while. That's why the button is closed. But we have to say no. Isn't that true? I can, but I won't. What a place of strength. And that's when we get peace in our lives. Colossians says this, the peace that Christ gives us is to guide you in the decisions you make. For it is to this peace that God has called you together with one body. You see, we keep sliding into debt. So to stop us, let me give you two things quickly. Number one here, make a budget. I know for some of you, you think it's an evil thing. Budgeting is painful, but it won't be fatal. It'll help you. It's like guide rails. And they say the simplest solution to almost every money problem is to spend less. Hope you're writing that down. You see, a budget helps you to know where your money's going so you don't wonder where it went. We used to keep a little book years ago before the phones we had and so on. We used to write everything down, keep all the tool slips, find out where our money was going. Oh, spending that on clothes, this on food, that on cool drink, that on chocolate. Oh gosh, my word. That on biltong at Woolies. All those things, you must know what you're doing. And if you're in a position where you can, you can, but if you can't, you say, oh, well, hang on a minute. We've got to cut that out. Hmm? The practice of thrift is not outdated. It's a valuable discipline that can help you. You're only as rich as your willpower, church. And debt is never an accident. It's because we don't budget. Now, Natalie Pace wrote a book called The ABCs of Money. How basic is that? And she said this, a debt problem is at its core a budgeting problem. If you're in debt today, it's because you didn't budget. You went ahead emotionally and you ended up in a place of debt. Now, there are times when there's tragedy, unforeseen circumstances, but most people, 99% of people, it's because they didn't budget. You see, a budget tells you what you can't afford, but a budget doesn't stop you from spending what you can't afford. You have to stop yourself from spending, and it's got even quieter in this church right now. Leslie Tain wrote a profound book called Life and Debt, and for some people, debt is death. And she said this, she said, budgeting has one rule. Do not go over budget. You see, that's why it's called a budget, because you mustn't budge. <laughs> but we have it as a rough guideline, so we end up in rough places. George Washington said this, we must consult our means rather than our wishes. So draw up a budget. Secondly, second thing you need to do is identify the small money leaks in your life. A lot of places where small money leaks out that you don't keep track of because you don't budget. And in that way, you're not deciding, you just slide down a slope. 
No, they're money leaks. Bank charges, double debits. Some people don't check their accounts. You're, they could debit you twice in an area, but because it's small, you ignore it. Recently, I was on uh, my phone, and there was this app that you could change your face, and you could add things to photographs. Anyone, anyone bought one of those apps? Guess what? You click on it, it's 30 days free. What they don't tell you in the fine print is if you don't go in and stop it, it starts recurring at 150 rand a month. I only found it after three months. I was like, what is this? When I went through my accounts, called Apple, they were on the ball, refunded me four months of those payments. Watch out for stuff like that. Do you know that a bank just has to make a one rand mistake on 300,000 accounts and they've got 300,000 in the bank? Charges on cards, store cards. 50 rand insurance. If you've got life insurance, you don't need store insurance. If they die, they can come and claim from my estate. Some clothing I bought from you. <laughs> I, years ago, when I had store cards, I found them. They were like, what do you mean? I was like, you can't charge me insurance unless you have my permission. And you've got four store cards, that's 200 rand. Put 200 rand in your bond. See how many years you reduce your bond payments. You buy coffee every day from Starbucks. Oh, well, it's 32 rand, and it's great coffee. Well, that's 600 rand a month. That's insurance on a small car. Think. Check. Hmm? John DeMartini, he's an author. He said this, piggy banks become biggie banks. It's the little bit you save that makes a difference. Number four, don't blame or expect from others. Don't blame or expect from others. Too many people are waiting and blaming, and it's my mother, and it's this economy, and it's this government, and it's Donald Trump. Stop blaming people, and stop being inactive and waiting for something to happen. Get on and make your life a success. No one's going to bail you out. Morgan Ziegers is a 22-year-old from the United States, and she's been campaigning amongst young people, especially millennials, in order to change their thinking about money. She said this, she said, young people are consuming hours of social media each day, which is dominated by leftist propaganda, pulling at their emotions while ignoring basic economics and history. You know, the whole world is moving towards an entitlement, a sharing out so that everyone feels equal, but that's not history and that's not basic economics and it's not biblical. We've got to have a sound mind when it comes to money. And the more we blame the rich and blame government, and the more we wait for others to help us, the less we will move forward. John Maxwell put it like this. He said, life is 10% what happens to me, 90% of how I react to it. So the government only has a 10% impact on you. The economy only has a 10% impact on you. How you respond is determined by 90% of your thinking. And we need to think biblically, not have a victim mentality and sit around waiting. You'll remember in John chapter 5 when Jesus came to a man who was sitting waiting at a pool. He said to him, do you want to get well? He said, I have no one to help me. 38 years he'd been waiting. Jesus didn't say, shame, take my hand. Here's a check. He said, rise up, take up your mat and walk. In other words, do something. The more you wait, the more you point, the more you blame, the less likely you are to move ahead. Herman Cain is an American politician who ran for president. He said this, he said, don't blame Wall Street. Don't blame the big banks. If you don't have a job and you're not rich, blame yourself. Because it all boils down to money management with whatever you have. Number five. No one's clapping. There's no amens. There's deep meditation. Or anger. Sorry, it's the 
It's what the Lord gives me. Number five, it gets worse. <laughs> Deal with pride and peer pressure. Do you know a lot of what happens to us is about peer pressure, what others are doing. We can't live by what other people do. What your friends and family do is their business. You've got to, have this, you've got to learn how to say this with confidence. We can't afford it. And possibly when I were growing up, I was in a job that was not very high paying. She worked in cosmetics. She was one of those beauty consultants. And uh, together we had, were raising a child. We lived in a rented apartment. But we had friends in the church who had inherited money. They bought their house and they, they were living well and they could go on holidays. And they'd say, you know, we're going to go out. And we'd say, we can't afford. Now we'll pay for you. I didn't want to be the poor cousin in church that was always hinting. So we said, sorry, we can't afford it. Thank you for the offer, but we decline. You're welcome to come over to our house for toasted sandwiches and coffee. <laughs> Still be hospitable. Learn to say no. But now we get pressurized, you see, because we believe lies. Let me give you three lies that we believe, that we tell ourselves. Number one, everyone else earns more than me. No, they don't. They just act like they do. Is that the truth? Number two, everyone else doesn't have my money problems. They do, they just hide it. And number three, everyone else can afford the things I can't. I don't think people can. I think often what we admire is bought with debt. And pride will destroy you. Hmm? Don't compare yourself to others. They've got different times to you, different opportunities, different gifts. We need to live in our lane, in our season. Can you say amen? And not put the wrong value on things because life is short. And in the end, it amounts to nothing. John Ortberg is a great author in America and a pastor of a church. And he talks about his grandmother. His grandmother taught him how to play Monopoly and how to be a man who accumulates material things. But he said she taught him that, but he learned another lesson. I want us to look on the screen, this quick video. See what he says about where everything ends up in life. Let's have a look. Let me tell you about my grandmother. She was a wonderful person, but she was the most ruthless Monopoly player I have ever known. And I would always land on her property once too often, and I would have to give her my last dollar and quit in utter defeat. And then she would say to me, don't worry about it, Johnny, one day you'll learn how to play the game. And I always hated it when she would say that. And I learned that summer how to play the game. It gradually dawned on me, money's how you keep score. You gotta acquire everything you can. And by the time that fall rolled around and I was gonna play my grandmother again, I was more ruthless than she was. I drove her off the board. And then I had one more lesson to learn. The great lesson at the end of the game is this. When the game is over, it all goes back in the box. All that money, all that property, all those houses, all those hotels, Everything, when the game is over, goes back in the box. The psalmist said, teach us to number our days aright so that we gain a heart of wisdom. You and I can be rich toward God, which is the only kind of richness that counts. Because all the other kinds, they're gonna end up here. They're going back in the box. And what really matters as the game comes to an end is, who have I been playing for? I don't know how the game is going for you. You may be a pawn, you may be the master of the board, 
really doesn't matter much. The king still has one more move. Isn't that true of life? It all goes back in the box. And in the end, you're trying to keep up with people. You're running yourselves into debt. You're losing your peace. And in the end, it all goes back in the box. If you don't know what the box is, it's a coffin. And you know what? We're just pawns. But the king needs to have the last say. Isn't that true? The king needs to have the last say. Number six, quickly as we come to a close, don't steal from God. If you're going to manage your money well, don't steal from God. Jimmy Carter says when it comes to giving, some people will stop at nothing. Yeah, no, one, no one's caught that. Some people just don't give anything. I was reading a statistic actually that 30% of the members of the average American church carry 80% of the financial responsibility. The other 70% of the church, they don't manage their money properly or they just take what is God's and they don't care because they've created their own theology. You know, in 2 Samuel, I want to read this quickly. 2 Samuel, that's what Eli and allowed his sons to do. They, they took what belonged to God. And sometimes when we use the offerings that are meant for God in the tithes, we're actually stealing from God. Notice what they did here. The Lord says, why do you scorn my sacrifice and offerings that I prescribe for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me? By fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel. They were taking the meat offerings. Far be it from me, those who honor me, I will honor. Promise thee. But those who despise me will be disdained. You know, we can end up spending our offerings and our tithes on fattening ourselves. Instead of blessing the Lord, we must be tithes and we must be givers. And we need to be people who empower our church to do what it does, not just tip it and kind of say, well, you don't need my money. We can actually be guilty of robbing God. Malachi, just two verses, I'll keep your pain to a minimum. Verses eight and nine, will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? This is repeated. Notice, in tithes and offerings. Some people think when they tithe, they're doing God a favor. No, you haven't even begun. When you give the tithe, listen, you're giving God what's his. When you give an offering, you're giving love. So don't just honor God with your money and with your tithe. Don't rob him of love. It says you're under a curse, the whole nation, because you're fourth time robbing me. Bring the whole tithe. Don't keep some of it back. Into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Let's honor God and empower our church and not hold back. I love what it says in 1 Corinthians 16. Here we're taught about offerings. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, that was Saturday for them, but Sunday for us as Christians. Each one of you, not some, each one of you should set aside a sum of money, offerings, in keeping with your income, saving it up, plan for it, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. You see, God wants to be able to see a changed heart in us. Do you know that the way you use your money shows whether your heart's really changed? I'll wrap up with this quickly. Jesus went to Jericho in the book of Luke, and he encounters a man called Zacchaeus, Jericho is an important place where Jesus did this is because that's the place of first fruits, the place of tithes. He met a man who climbed into a tree called Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but I'm not sure he wanted Jesus to see him. But Jesus calls him down out of the tree and they have an encounter in his house. And I want to read it because there's five signs of a changed life and then we're going to pray. 
We see here in Luke 19, verse 7, it says all the people saw this and began to mutter. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. That's how they viewed Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. They used to take more than their share. They were greedy. They used to crook people. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, this is after they spent time together, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone out of anything, he would have, I pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today, notice this, salvation has come to this house. Not a changed attitude, not a generosity, salvation. Because this man too is a son of Abraham. Now notice here, in the authorized standard version, we read this, and in many translations it says this, for the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost, not those who were lost. Both us and our money need redemption. And a changed life is reflected in the way we handle money and whether we put God first or last. Five signs are quickly. Scribble them down if you're making notes or listen. Zacchaeus went from taking to giving. He said, half my possessions I give to the poor. When you become a Christian, you should not be a taker. You should be a giver. Number two, from dishonesty to honesty. If I've cheated anyone, he didn't pay back the twice that the law required. He paid back four times. Why? Heart change, not legislation. He went from stinginess to generosity. I'll pay back four times the amount. He paid over and above. And then from faith in money to faith in Jesus. Look, Lord, he said. He made Jesus Lord instead of money his Lord. I think it's so important that we reflect that. And then obviously he went from lost to found. We've got to manage money wisely because when we do, it reflects a changed life. And not only does it reflect a changed life, we get peace, we get joy. There's nothing like being free from debt and having something to back yourself and having something to pass on to your children. Money management is of prime importance and it reflects our lives today. We hope you have been blessed and inspired by this message.